This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Karish Andrews is a partner at Lewis Silkin, a top 100 UK law firm. He also spent three years at the Magic Circle firm Fresh Frills Brookhouse Duringa. Say that fast three times. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with agency M&A, who's buying all the creative services firms today, diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. There's this perception with lawyers that they're quite straight-laced and not very open for obvious reasons, but that's certainly not the case with the lawyers that we've had on the show so far, and especially not with Karish. Modestly, he says that he wasn't talented or creative enough to become a creative, so he became a lawyer. The goal of Lewis Silkin is to become the best employment law firm in the UK and to become the best firm for clients in the creative industries. We discuss everything from the fact that pre-COVID it was a seller's market, how EBITDA and profitability has gone down for many agencies, uh, uncertainty in the market, not only because of COVID, but also Brexit, which hasn't been discussed at all, really. Uh, Trump re-election, trade wars. We discuss the impact of COVID-19 on Lewis Silkin themselves, why some deals don't go according to plan, the importance of leadership and culture, We also talk about diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, and and he says that if we imagine that we're scaling a diversity mountain, gender diversity would be at base camp, and ethnic diversity would be in the distant foothills, which I thought was really fascinating. We talk about the issues concerning accessibility in the legal profession, which is a massive issue for Magic Circle firms. He talks about racism still being an issue in the UK. His mother was actually recently racially abused on a bus in in leafy West London. Uh, It's an area quite close to his heart because his grandfather was involved in the fight for freedom in apartheid South Africa. This is just a tour de force conversation concerning all those things that we discussed earlier. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Karish Andrews. Karish Andrews is a corporate lawyer at Lewis Silkin, a top 100 UK commercial law firm working in the marketing, communications, media and entertainment, technology, retail and sports industries. He advises on mergers and acquisitions and investments and provides general corporate and commercial advice. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Karish Andrews, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. I've always thought I had the perfect face for an audio project. (laughs) You and me, you and me both. Um, you you get your MA in modern history from Oxford University. You get your LPC from BPP Law School. Then you go on to get your postgrad in sports law from the King's College. Then you go on to get your mini MBA from the London School of Economics. It looks as though you always had your heart set on a career in law from the very beginning. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I'd have to blame Tom Cruise, I think. I grew up um, in the 1990s and he just had an extraordinary number of fantastic uh, lawyer roles that he played. So A few good men. Exactly. I wanted to be a military lawyer and then The Firm was one of my favourites. The Firm, yeah. A shady tax lawyer and then... And then Jerry Maguire, I think, probably was the the killer film. And you know, who showed me the money? Who didn't want to be a sports lawyer after that film? Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah, look, being being serious, um, you know, I, I I actually really wanted to do something creative for my career, but you know, the hard truth was, um, 
I wasn't talented enough to do that. So I, you know, I decided I'd try and do the next best thing. And that was a career that would help talented creatives. And, you know, law is one of those careers. You you joined Freshfields Brookhouse Deringa in 2003. They're one of the five uh, magic circle firms. Also in that list are Alan and Overy, Clifford Chance, Linklaters and Slaughter and May. It must have been pretty competitive to get into one of those firms. It certainly is now. Um, I think it's I think it's very difficult to get into any city law firm these days. Um, you know, I, I help quite a lot with recruitment into our team, and I'm always absolutely amazed at the standard of CV that we get in these days. Look, you know, I, I you know I was quite lucky. I studied history. That was my favourite subject at school. Um, it was certainly easier than law to get into Oxford doing history. Um, and magic circle firms definitely preferred Oxbridge candidates at that time. Mm. Uh, there was a joke back then that Freshfields only hired blues or blondes, um, blues being people who played sport for the university. I was neither, but okay. you know, I still managed to scrape in. I mean, I suspect. Look, I, I suspect things are very different now, and quite rightly so. Okay, I. When you said blues, I, th- I thought you meant blues, um, Birmingham City football fans or supporters, but no, you... you We're not allowed about... to talk about Birmingham City on your show. <laughs> we, in fact, we, we're only allowed to talk about Birmingham City on my... <laughs> Birmingham City and Aston Villa, that's uh, that, that's my neck of the woods. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about Lewis Silkin. You're, you're a top 100 UK commercial law firm with offices in... London, Oxford, Cardiff, Dublin, Hong Kong. Uh, You've been with the company for 14 years now. Your two business divisions focus on the firm's core markets, uh, creators, makers, and innovators, supporting creative, innovative, and brand-focused businesses, and employment, immigration, and and reward, supporting senior executives, human resource professionals, and employment lawyers within uh, major UK and international businesses. Tell us a little bit more about the firm, and what does your day-to-day role look like? Sure. So there are there are two key strategies at, at Lewis Silkin, which which you know marry up with the business divisions that you've just described. So firstly, you know, we aim to be the best employment law firm in the UK. Uh, and I think the awards show that you know we're very close to achieving that or have already achieved that goal. Uh, secondly, we're trying to be the best firm for clients in the creative industries. Uh, and we break that down into different sectors, such as advertising and marketing, technology, media and entertainment and sport. And in some of those sectors, for example, advertising and marketing, we can certainly lay claim to, to being you know, one of the very best. Um, in terms of my day job, I'm a general corporate lawyer, so my bread and butter is, is M&A. Uh, I generally act for you know, a fairly even number of buyers and sellers. Sellers generally are owner managers of agencies in in the creative industries. I work in two main sectors, uh, marketing services and sport. And then I've also got um, a variety of management roles. I sit on the learning and development board, uh, the diversity board, and I chair uh, the Bain Group. Well, let's talk a little bit about your M&A history and and background before we get into the diversity and inclusion stuff, because that's something that I'm really fascinated by. And I know that you are as well. Um, 
So the M&A landscape has significantly changed. I'm hearing that there are more buyers in the marketplace today than there were even pre-COVID. Talk a little bit about what the landscape looks like for buyers and sellers today and how has it changed in light of the pandemic and, and recent events? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there are more than pre-COVID. It's probably a bit too early to tell, but there are certainly a lot of buyers in the marketing services industry. Um, and as a result of there being so many buyers, I do think it had become a bit of a seller's market. Um, you know, but that didn't you know that certainly didn't mean you could sell any old agency. Um, you know, I'd say there are four key groups of buyers. You've still got your you know, global holding companies, the likes of WPP Publicis, IPG, Omnicom, uh, Dentsu and Havas, but, you know, they have been much quieter in the last couple of years. Uh, you've got the private equity investors, Bain, Livingbridge, BGF, LDC, people like that. Mm -hmm. You've got the management consultancies, um, you know, that they've really come to the party in the last, uh, you know, couple of years or so. And then you've got the smaller, you know, independent marketing services companies, people like Ford Communications and MSQ, et cetera. You know, and then there are others that, you know, don't really fall into those categories. You know, obviously you've got Samartin at S4, there's Next15, Hakahodo in Japan, uh, people like Q. So, you know, there's, a, there's just a huge number of, of buyers um, looking at agencies. And, you know, when you've got a large number of buyers, um, you know, that creates that creates a big demand. And, you know, certainly pre-COVID, I think it's fair to say it was a bit of a seller's market. market. Obviously, agencies have been, you know, hit hard uh, and deals have stalled at the moment. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what's going to happen. So why was it a seller's market before COVID-19? Talk a little bit about what the, some of the factors were that led to it being... Um, a seller's market and explain for our listeners sort of what the environment sort of looks like now because I would imagine that a lot of agencies have lost a lot of value in their businesses because of the the pandemic the agencies particularly affected um, that maybe uh, you know a lot of their clients were in the travel industry or other industries that were significantly affected by by COVID talk a little bit about also how those agencies are now looking to build value back into their businesses so that they once again become start to become attractive to potential investors or acquirers it's a really bad question there are loads of questions in that sorry for that but um i think you know where i'm coming from yeah sure so i mean i think look pre-covid i think it was you know the reason why i'm saying it was a bit of a seller's market simply is that there's just you know as i said there were a huge number of buyers you know, so I've outlined those four categories, but, you know, there were any number of uh, buyers within each of those categories. And I think, you know, when sellers were appointing a corporate finance advisor pre-COVID, you know, they could, they could literally go and speak to I see. 100 buyers. Now, okay. that number, just the natural economics of it, you know, drives up value. Um, you know, there were probably almost more buyers than there were agencies up for sale. Hmm. I think that, you know, I think that's the situation pre-COVID. I mean, during COVID, look, you know, clearly everyone's been, um, you know, been hit really, really hard. You know, EBITDA profitability, you know, has gone down. And agencies that are particularly, um, 
you know, aligned with certain sectors that have been hit hardest by COVID-19. So, you know, whether that's retail or hospita hospitality or leisure or whatever it is, you know, it, it's just really, really tough. Um, and we're still in the middle of it, aren't we? It's, it's very difficult to know exactly what, what's going to happen. You know, COVID hit in the second quarter of the year. Uh, deals definitely tailed off um, towards the end of April. Uh, there were a lot of deals getting done just really to make take advantage of entrepreneurs' relief, which is a uh, you know a, a good UK tax regime for sellers. But that sort of was severely curtailed towards the end of March, and you know COVID hit us at the same time. So you know deals definitely tailed away. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens. You know I think that um, you know in terms of looking forward uh, you know it's probably important to take a step back first um m a is generally linked to the strength of the economy right hmm. um and you know last week the bank of england said it expects the uk economy to shrink by nearly 10 percent this year which you know that's the big in a century that's you know that's a pretty hard stat you know what i was pretty amazed also that they said is that they thought that the economy would grow nine percent in 2021 so, optimistic you know well maybe i mean essentially that's you getting back to a pre-covid size within a year hmm. i think what i you know a lot of people like to make big assumptions and, and big predictions but i think the two things that worry me is that the Bank of England are, are, are predicting a 9% growth next year, assuming that there's no second wave mm. and also assuming that there's a smooth transition to a, a new EU free trade agreement. You know, no one's mm. talking about Brexit, really. We've all got obsessed with, with the coronavirus. Um, and the third factor, they're assuming that we'll have a vaccine. Uh, correct. And also, you know, what happens if Trump gets re-elected in November, mm. you know, continues his his trade war with China. So, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. But look, I, you know, that, that should mean tough times for M&A. But I do think there are deals to be done. Um, I think we will see the private equity houses take advantage of these lower valuations. Um, and agencies, you know, with stronger balance sheets are going to see this as an opportunity. There's no doubt about that, you know, to pick up some some good bolt-ons and, you know, to scale up. So so with those agencies that were thinking about selling before COVID hit, what are you seeing them doing at the moment? Are they sort of hanging on and sort of hold, holding off uh, going through a sale process until we sort of reach the back end of this thing? Are they trying to build value back into their agencies? And how, how have you seen them do that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think you know, there's understandably everyone's quite inward looking at the moment. Um, so, you know, it's really tough. And I don't think agencies are any different from lots of other businesses right now. Um, you know, I do believe in the saying that you, if you look after your employees, then they will look after you. Um, you know, so I think people are, you know, are nurturing their talents and their staff. They're making sure they're okay. They're finding ways to keep up morale, and they're, you know, they're looking after their key clients, even if there isn't a project going on. Uh, you know, making sure that you're front of mind for that when the time comes is is really critical. So I think 
people are just, you know, treading water, let's be honest at the moment. Um, and, you know, finding ways to, to keep their profitability up. Um, and, you know, I think we'll look at, look at the lie of the land towards the end of the year. I think we've got a very interesting time coming to us towards the end of October when furlough stops mm. and agencies are having to rely solely on their own resources and bank funding. Mm. Yeah, and I think there's a big question is, you know, will management teams have that determination and stamina to continue to go it alone um, and, you know, build back up in 2021? Or will they be tempted to do a deal um, that, you know, knowing that 21 could bring even more uncertainty? Let's talk a little bit about COVID-19 in relation to Lewis Silkin, uh, using the framework of respond reimagine and, and recover how did the firm respond in the early days in march when uh when we were all hit with the news and the uncertainty how have you subsequently reimagined or changed the business and what are your plans for recovery over the next sort of 6 12 18 months if you've got a crystal ball yeah um you know we 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 responded we were very quick to respond um i think our management have handled the crisis incredibly well um, at a time like this, you need a really good CFO. Unfortunately, we have one. She mapped out you know, various financial scenarios for us, which made you know, the decision making a lot easier. Uh, we sent everyone home very, very quickly. We stress tested our IT equipment uh, in the middle of March. So we were ready when the government made their announcement. Um, you know, we're quite lucky everyone at the firm has a laptop anyway. Mm. Um, but when it was clear that, you know, this was going to go on longer than a few weeks, we encouraged people to you know, take home their, their IT and office equipment and try and recreate their office at home as, as much as possible. And, you know, like everyone else, we suddenly got very used to VidCon. Um, hmm. But, you know, management stayed in touch with people. You know, at the height of the crisis, we got daily update emails. So there was lots and lots of communication uh, and transparency with everyone. Uh, in terms of reimagining, um, you know, I think the thing, the key thing that we've done is to ask everyone, and I mean literally every member of staff, how they would like to work in the new normal. Hmm. Um, you know, I think we've all proved to ourselves that remote working can work. That doesn't mean to say we're never going to go back to the office, but you know, the future is going to be different. I think we'll be, I think we'll be much more flexible. Uh, you know, face-to-face -face meetings, I still think will be important uh, and catching up in teams is still important. But, you know, as a lawyer, if you've got a really difficult agreement to draft, uh, then it can be actually more efficient to do that from home in the peace and quiet and you know, sure. save yourself that commute. Um, and in terms of recovery, again, I'm, you know, I'm not sure we're that different from anyone else. You know, we're staying close to our clients. Uh, we keep listening to their needs, you know, and unusually for lawyers, we're trying to be really imaginative and, and innovative. So we've come up, um, you know, we've launched a low cost fixed fee commercial law offering called LS Assist, you know, mm. helps support day to day legal needs in a, you know, a much more cost efficient way for our clients. Uh, we've also started delivering training via VidCon to our clients. And we, you know, we've come up with another with another sort of product called LS Unlock, which gives a free 
initial assessment of uh, a commercial claim. So lots of clients think they have breach of contract claims at the moment, but they don't know what their options are. They know it can be very expensive to get into a dispute. So, you know, we're pro providing them with, you know, a free initial assessment of their options. And, you know, I think that type of thing is, you know, lawyers are going to have to become a bit more nimble, a bit more flexible and a, sure. bit, a bit more innovative. So that's that's really fascinating to hear. Talk a little bit about the morale component, because with all of us working from home, uh, some people, I'm sure, are dying to get back into the office. Other people, not so much. They're pretty happy working from home. Talk about how you've addressed the morale of the of the team and the and your and the partners at the firm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think everyone has reacted differently to, to this situation. Some people have really, really loved working from home. Some people have absolutely hated it. And, you know, some people are in between that. Uh, I think morale is absolutely critical, isn't it? So, we, you know, we've tried to just stay in touch as much as possible. Um, you know, we've had a couple of pub quizzes and that kind of thing. And just getting people together on the big cons um and seeing people's faces and just staying in touch um it's just a natural human thing to do i think but mm. uh, i think you can become a bit reclusive can't you when, you, when you're just at home uh, and particularly in those days when you know lockdown was really severe and you couldn't really go out other than to the shops i think everyone became a bit reclusive and we just tried to try to break that down by you know by having regular catch-ups um, and making sure that everyone feels that they can, you know, call on you whenever they need you. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about selling your business in a bit more detail because we know that selling your business is tough emotionally. It's hard on on your business and your and your work stream while the sale is going through. It requires multiple skill sets from investors, legal advisors, and their internal teams. Describe what the typical sale process looks like and, and how do founders best prepare themselves for it? Sure. Um, you know, I, I would say this, but I think it's important to get your advisors on board uh, as early as possible. So, you, you know, you need a good law firm, you know, you need a good accountancy. And, you know, I, I do believe in, in corporate finance advisors. I do think they... they um, I know a lot of agencies don't see the need for a corporate finance advisor, but generally I think they are more than worth it. Mm. Uh, so hopefully they'll find you the right buyer at the sort of valuation that you're looking for. Um, and then the first stage where we as lawyers tend to get involved is negotiating the heads of terms uh, or the term sheets. You know, and I take the view that it's important to flesh out as much as possible uh, the key details in that. I think it's, you know, it's much easier to fall out with people earlier on than it is right at the end when you've spent you know hundreds of hours and huge amounts of money trying to do a deal to fall out at the end is is heartbreaking it's much better to fall out early on so you know i always advise my clients to try and to try and really you know get to grips with all the gory details as much as possible on their heads of terms what what are some of the re common reasons why people fall out towards the end of the end of deals I mean, fortunately, I don't think it's that uh, common towards the end. I mean, I think I think people fall out. Generally, it's due to the financial due diligence. So, you know, after the heads of term stage, there's the due diligence phase, if you like, and that's where the buyer's really looking, you know, if you like, under the under the bonnet of the car, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll do their financial and tax due diligence and their legal due diligence. And it's normally something that comes out of the financial or tax due diligence that, that puts a buyer off. Um, you know, the agency may have not accounted properly for, for some tax or, or were still not paid some tax. Mm. And that sometimes, you know, that, that can lead to sort of big figures. And if, you know, if people aren't aligned on, va- aligned on valuation, that can cause people to, to, to fall apart, I think. I see. And so you mentioned it's better to f- fall apart if you are going to fall apart towards the beginning of the uh, of, of the relationship. Talk a little bit about what, what some of the common reasons are why deals don't go through towards the beginning of the sale process. Um, at, at, at the beginning of the sale process, I mean, I think it, it's just uh, often it's chemistry. You know, are people aligned on what they want to achieve from the transaction? Uh, do the parties get on? Uh, are the, do they agree the structure for the deal? You know, there are various ways of doing the deals. Um, traditionally in marketing services, there's, there's often been a large earnout element, which is where you know, a lot of the value for the deal is based on the future profitability of the company. Um, you know, sellers, sellers want a higher multiple and a shorter earnout. Buyers want a lower multiple and a longer earnout generally. Sure. So, you know, everyone needs to align on that. And you know, and if you can't, if you if you can't get that far, then you, you you're not going to get very far uh, in the transaction. But you know, it's about aligning yourself over what do both sides see as being the future for the agency over the next three to five years, and you really need to get alignment on that. Otherwise, you're not going to make any progress. And and then, how how far in advance should agency owners be looking to build relationships with buyers prior prior to a sale? When should they start thinking about it, and when should they start building those relationships that are going to help them uh, complete a successful deal? I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I guess the easy answer is as long as possible in advance. Yeah. But really, the key thing is to do your background checking, you know, your due diligence, if you like. Mm. It can be good to speak to other owner-managers who've sold their business to the potential buyer. Um, But, you know, as I've said before, I think with M&A, a lot of it is about chemistry. And that, you know, that's what's been really hard in lockdown. You need to find that right chemistry. um, And that takes some time. And it also takes meeting the right people at the buyer. Now, after the deal's done, you're not going to spend any time with the M&A team at the buyer. You're going to be spending your time with the network leaders uh, into which the agency is going to sit. Um, so you really need to get to know those people that you're going to be, you know, reporting to effectively and um, going forward. And, you know, if it's a PE deal, I think it's critical that you get to know the investor director who's going to sit on your board mm. and make sure that you get on with you know, him or her, as you're going to be working, you know, you're going to be working very closely with them. So you need to make sure that that, that relationship works. So I don't think it's about the amount of time, it's the quality of the time. You know, you can do that very quickly, but you really need to know, um, you know, frankly, who you're getting into bed with. Hmm. Really fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about when agencies are, are, are buying other, other agencies. People often argue that there's no such thing as a merger. There are only acquisitions. The thinking being that 
you have to quickly inculcate the acquired employees into your existing acquirers firm and culture quite quickly. Um, talk a little bit about that. Do you do you agree that there's no such thing as a as a merger and there are only acquisitions? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and what, one of the real issues with earnout deals, which we've also, you know, we, we've already just touched on, um, you know, marketing services groups, you know, generally look to engage with customers at every stage, right? That's the, that's the goal at the moment. They want to engage with people at strategy, at creative, production, distribution, you know, market research. So they're looking for that, if you like, one-stop shop mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what stifles that, uh, you know, is different cultures and competing P&Ls. So I do, ideally, buyers want their acquisitions to merge seamlessly within the group's overall proposition. Uh, and to do that, they need the culture of the target agency and the buyer to fit. But on the, you know, on from the other perspective, the challenge is that you know owner managers will unsurprisingly have a very keen eye on their P&L because they're trying to maximize the size of the earnout and therefore the amount that they get paid. And they're going to be very sensitive about any changes they might deem a risk to that and the target's culture. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure anyone has come up with the perfect solution. Um, and it's interesting that S4 seems to have moved away from the earnout model uh, when it used to be the bread and butter of, you know, WPP deals when when Sir Martin was, was boss over there. So, so you talked a little bit about how important the culture was there of the, of, of the agency, especially if they are, they mean to sort of make sure that they're sort of joining a, a, co- a cohesive collaborative team. Talk a little bit about what some of the factors are of an outstanding leadership team and how do you make sure that cultures align quite early on in the sale process? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a great question. Um, one of the modules I did on my, my mini MBA at LSE last year was around leadership and culture. Uh, and I do think culture comes from top down. I mean, I think the team needs a few characteristics. That doesn't mean each manager has all of them. But I think the team together needs to cover a few bases. Um, I think you need the ability to influence others. Mm-hmm. And that requires the ability to listen, to, to build consensus and to, to gain trust. I think you need to encourage risk taking and innovation. I've already talked a bit about some of the innovative things that we've done as a firm. Um, you know, overall, I'm not sure we're great at that in the legal profession, but generally, I think you need uh, to create a culture that isn't scared to make mistakes and allow mm-hmm. employees to test their ideas because they know that their leadership values creativity. Um, What else? I I think integrity. I think that's crucial. Mm -hmm. I think people like to feel safe and know that they'll be treated fairly. Uh, And, you know, and that the leadership team will do what's what's right for the business and not, you know, not only not always just look at their own personal needs, that they'll do what's right for the business overall. And then finally, you know, I think you need to be decisive. You need to make good decisions and, and quickly. Um, leaders need to move the business forward. Uh, and you, you just can't do that if you procrastinate and waver too much. So mm. I think those are the key skills that leadership, you know, leadership teams need. And, I, you know, I don't think 
I don't think it matters whether you're talking about a small agency or a massive holding company. I think those are all, you know, important things for for any board of directors, really. Mm. Leadership has definitely been put under the micros- microscope during this time of COVID-19 and, and the uncertainty. So um, I'm sure a lot of those qualities that you mentioned have been stress tested in the last few months. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion towards the back end of the of the interview, because you're on the Learning and Develop, Development Board, uh, Diversity Board, and you're also chair of the BAME group at, at the firm. Um, the legal profession is probably one of the least diverse sectors in our economy. The profession has really tried to address the issues over, over the years, but we're still not seeing the progress that other sectors have seen or that we'd like to see. W- what seems to be the problem and, and what more can be done in, in the legal profession? Yeah, I mean, it's a topic very close to my heart. I mean, I think ethnic diversity is definitely an issue in the legal profession. Uh, I think we have made some progress with gender diversity, but um, you know, if we were scaling a diversity mountain, you know, I'd say we're at base camp with gender diversity and in the you know distant foothills uh, with with ethnic diversity. Wow, that's stark. That's that's quite a an image to put in our heads. That's that's really fascinating to hear you say that. I think that's right. I think in the legal. Def- in the legal profession, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, there's been a lot said and written since George Floyd's death, or I should say murder, um, at the end of May. But, you know, one of the statistics that hit home for me, being a lawyer, was that out of the 800 UK-based Magic Circle law firm partners, just six are black. Mm. Um, you know, and in all honesty, our statistics um, at Lewis Lipin are not much better than that. Mm. Um, so, you know, what, you know, what are the issues? I think ex- accessibility, I think, is a big issue. And then even when we, you know, even when we hire people, retaining them can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and there are a lack of role models and mentors. I'm very, very focused on improving our accessibility at the moment. Uh, that's really, you know, close to my heart. Over the last two weeks, I've been interviewing candidates for our new apprenticeship scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've never done this before, but um, we're taking on two apprentices, uh, so school leavers aged 18 or 19 uh, in September, who will start a six-year apprenticeship. And then after that, they'll be fully qualified solicitors with, with an LRB in law. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think what's been interesting for me is throughout the application process for these apprenticeships, we've had in excess of 50% BAME candidates. And when you compare that to, I think it's around 28% um, apply for our training contracts over the last few years, you know, that's a much, much, much higher percentage. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we need to get far, far better at access. Um, but, you know, overall, I just think we need to do more. Everyone needs to t- take personal responsibility for this. Um, you know, throughout my life, there's been, you know, horrible incidences. Um, you know, I remember when Stephen Lawrence was murdered in 1993. And, mm. you know, more recently, we've had the riots in London in 2011 and the Windrush scandal. And, you know, we've, we've always had events like this. But, you know, there's never been a huge um, change subsequently. And I'm just, I'm really hopeful. I am quite optimistic 
that this this will be different uh, and we will will make a lasting change and i you know i just really really hope you know i really hope that these awful events lead to a, a lasting change not just in our profession but but in society it it does feel different this time i i agree with you your your grandfather went to prison in um in the apartheid era in south africa so i imagine that you grew up with a lot of those stories of injustice around the di- dinner table <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, my grandfather died before I was born. But um, well, I remember from a very, very, very early age that you know the fight against racism was was a major part of our family. And my mum used to show me, you know, all these amazing black and white photos of him sitting on whites only park benches. Hmm. Um, and he would, you know, he'd do it deliberately, and then he'd call up his journalist friends um, so that they were there taking lots of photos and writing news stories as he was, you know, being hauled away by the police. Mm. Um, I mean, I think two of my, you know, two of my strongest memories growing up um, was firstly Nelson Mandela being released from prison. Mm. Uh, I think I was about 11 at the time. And then, and then South Africa winning the Rugby World Cup in 1995 in South Africa and him handing over the trophy to Francois Pinar. You know, I've always supported England in sport, um, and I'm, you know, sport is one of my great loves. But that was that was undoubtedly, uh, you know, my proudest moment as a sports fan. Mm. But uh, you know, racism isn't confined to South Africa or the US. You know, it's still very much, I'm afraid, alive and kicking in in London. Even you know, my mother was horribly racially abused last year on a bus in in you know leafy West London. Hmm. Um, you know, and I get I get angry even just thinking about that. Have Have you experienced any racism or, or prejudice in your professional career? I mean, with a distinguished background in the Magic Circle firms and and Lewis Silkin, and obviously your academic career, um, have you experienced any prejudice? Uh, I think there've been a couple of instances of what you describe as microaggressions or. Hmm micro incivilities and that's usually be surrounding my name um you know i'd like to think that overt racism doesn't take place that much in law firms but i think these you know i think the word these days is micro incivilities i like to mm. you know, the, the death by a thousand cuts i think is how people sure it. and i think that's what's much more common um, you know, we've just started a compulsory training session for all of our people at Lewis Silkin on being an ally, uh, which I think will be, re- you know, really, really helpful for people and allow them to ask difficult questions. Um, you know, and I think so much of this is about understanding. You can't move forward until you understand what's wrong and accept that there is something wrong. You just can't, you know, you can't make that progress. But, you know, I am... I am quite positive that you know we we will make progress here, and I, the reason why is honestly I think this is a generational thing. I think mm. millennials and Generation Z are just not going to accept apathy on this subject anymore. Mm. Mm. And you know, being brutal about this, if businesses don't change, they're going to get left behind. You know, we're already seeing our clients take far greater interest in what we're doing about diversity and, you know, and what we can do together with them. So Interesting. people just can't, it, it's not just people like me who are interested in this. Right. Um, 
you know, it's not just people on diversity boards. It, this is a business decision now. If you don't take diversity seriously, and racism is obviously part of that, then, you know, good luck. I don't think your business is going to get very far over the next decade or so. Really fascinating. Well, let's let's hope so. Um, Karish, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. I've only got a few more questions now, so let's get into everyone's favorite questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so i'm really excited to ask you some of them as well um let's start with a nice easy one tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience um look i try not to dwell too much on success and failure um i think for me the key is to learn from mistakes uh, I would definitely say that uh, I learn more from my mistakes than from you know when I get things right. Um, you know, one of the mistakes I've been making for a while that I'm really concentrated on at the moment is learning when not to deliver difficult news by email. I mm. think lawyers we're a bit addicted to email; it's sort of our default process. But you know, getting emotion or tone or feeling across by email is is just really difficult. Uh, so it's much better when you actually speak to someone. So, you know, frankly, I'm trying to pick up the phone more and, and have VidCon. I think that's just a much better way of sometimes, you know, delivering difficult news. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to the legal profession, to M&A. Who do you, yeah, tell us about some of your early mentors. Uh, William Braffman was a great mentor to me. Uh, he used to describe himself as a greybeard, and he really was a, a Gandalf-like figure for me. I mean, I think what he made me realise was that being a good lawyer is so much about emotional intelligence. Now, most clients aren't looking for the best lawyer in the city. They're looking for someone who understands them, understands their needs and concerns, and, you know, and someone they like working with. You know, and he, he definitely taught me that. Um, yeah, I think more recently, Brinsley Dresden, our head of advertising, he's been great to me. Mm. Not much he doesn't know about the industry. I think he's the only lawyer in campaigns A-list, which, you know, says it all. Um, you should really be interviewing him. He's, he's, he's much more interesting than me. I'll get him on the podcast. <laughs> he does look like Boris Johnson, though, but I guess that wouldn't be a problem. On, uh, on a- yeah, we won't hold it against him. <laughs> Who, who do you admire most in the marketing services industry and why? Um, I think from afar, I've always really admired Karen Blackett. Um, mm. Strangely, we swapped emails about cricket once, but sadly, I don't, I don't really know her personally. I just think she's a, you know, she's a brilliant speaker. She's got an OBE for services to media. And, you know, it's just a fantastic campaigner on diversity. Mm. And, you know, and she also just seems to come across as a lovely person. I think, you know, you also always admire your close clients. Mm. Uh, you know, I've got a great relationship with Nan Williams, the CEO at, at Ford Communications. She's, a, you know, she's just a pleasure to work with and is just always very calm and in control. Uh, Jackie Stevenson at the Brooklyn Brothers. She's just a bundle of energy and optimism. I was, I was so pleased that she was appointed um, president of WACL. I think, you know, she'll do a great job there. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I think if there's a nicer man in the industry than Charles Courtier, who's the chairman of MSQ, I, I've yet to meet him. Hmm. 
some some great suggestions there for podcast guests. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, they'd all be they'd all be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll ask for an introduction off air. Um, tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development, and what books do you have been instrumental in guiding your professional career? Um. So my favourite subject at school was history. Um, so I've always loved historical novels. Uh, so really anything by Sebastian Falks so I've loved, Birdsong and Charlotte Grey. I was, I was very obsessed with World War I, World War II mm. when I was doing my degree. So I've always loved those type of books. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think anything about the sort of financial crisis in 2008, nine, I've always right. loved those. Things like Liars Poker and yeah. things like that. I mean, if you force me to only keep one book, um, I think it would probably be To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Um, you know, you, won't, you probably won't be surprised by that, but, um, you know, Atticus Fitch, you know, he's the ultimate hero lawyer, isn't he? He fights to uphold the law, you know, fights against racial prejudice. So sure. That's my favourite book, for sure. Fascinating book. Some some great suggestions there. Amazon Prime or Netflix? What are you watching and streaming these days? That's that's good. Yeah, we love Netflix. Um, obviously, with lockdown, we've been watching even more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a slightly strange fascination with drug gangs and the mafia. I think. Okay, <laughs> worrying. Probably ought to get some therapy for that. Sure. Um, yeah, we love Narcos. Okay. Really recommend that. Mafia, Peaky Blinders. Okay. Um, Giri Hadji we watched recently. That was good. A bit weird. Cool? But we did watch that. It's, it's, it's a Japanese um, sort of detective police uh, thriller, and it straddles. It's a season, but it's, it straddles Japan and, and London. But what's really interesting, it flips between, you know, subtitles. Um, but it's really about, you know, the Japanese mafia, I guess. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's Pretty good. Recommend that. And, and the name and the name again is Hiri Haji. Hiri Haji. Hiri G I R I. G I R I. Wonderful. I'll I'll check, I'll check it out. Um, Honor or something like that in Japanese. Okay. Um, added to my list. Um, what advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who says they want to start their career in a top London law firm? Uh, I say do something more interesting. <laughs> no, that's not the right answer, is it? Um, I, you know, honestly, I'd say that it's, it is incredibly competitive and tough these days. So you've got to really, really want to do it. Um, but, you know, if you do and you work hard, you know, it can be an incredibly rewarding job in, in all sorts of ways. I think I'd also say, you know, don't beat yourself up too much about your mistakes. Um, Lawyers are always trying to be perfect, and it's just not possible. Learn from learn from your mistakes and move on quickly. I think that would be my advice. Tell us something we don't know about Karish Andrews. Something you don't know. Um, I was the second best saber fencing person in Britain under eighteen. Wow. My life. There you go. Oh, wow. Okay. That is that is pretty interesting. Uh what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Uh we do yoga, we go walking a lot. We we live around the corner from Victoria Park, so we you know regularly uh 
do laps of that. Um, I think actually that's one of been the real benefits of lockdown. I've actually done a huge amount more exercise. So, um, so hopefully I'll be able to continue that when we get back to uh, the new normal, whenever that will be. And my final question, Karish, what is it you know about the world of media and M&A today that you wish you knew when you began your career at the very beginning? Um, I think I think the trick is to achieve your client's objective as best you can uh, and not to win, you know, every point or to point score with the other side. I was I was far too adversarial and a- aggressive in my early career. And, it, you know, it took me a long time to make that change. And, and to be honest, I wish I'd done it sooner. So I think I think that, that's what I would tell my my younger self. Mm, great answer. Uh, Karish, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We have been speaking with Karish Andrews. He's currently a partner at Lewis Silkin. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 90 conversations we've had now with world-class leaders in media and advertising. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at NathanAnnieBarber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. And we're done. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. What did you think? <laughs> <laughs>